Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Joining us for today's episode, Rick Watson, the founder and CEO of RMW Commerce Consulting. Rick will talk to us about the current state in terms of product fulfillment in the U.S. and more notably, what's going on with UPS, FedEx, and the Postal Service in the U.S. and how retailers can maybe sidestep or work with those logistics platforms a little bit in order to reduce either customer complaints because something's arriving late or potentially reduce cost to their bottom line. A big thanks to you for joining us this week. We'll also discuss in our news segment a little bit about grocery, a little bit about department stores, and in our looking ahead segment, we'll dip back into grocery. A reminder that you can like us and rate us however you access us, whether that be on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, or any other podcast listening service. You can also check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. So we move into our new segment, as we mentioned, with a couple of brief grocery notes. Just some headlines here is Grocery Outlet and Spartan Nash both released earnings this week. Just again, some brief notes on this because we talked about these retailers recently on the podcast, but Grocery Outlet saw sales up 17.1% year over year, but much of this was due to their new locations. Comps for them actually came in at 9.1%, which is on the lower side of grocery comps we've seen lately. Their fourth quarter guidance is for mid-single digit comps with a decline in store traffic. So mid-single digit comps far lower than what we've seen for them recently, and that's more in line with pre-pandemic grocery conditions, in fact, and maybe this could signal a bit of a fall-off in the discount grocery space. We'll talk more about that in our Looking Ahead segment. Meanwhile, retail comps at Spartan Nash were slightly stronger, 10.6% increase year over year. New CEO Tony Sarsam noted on the call a continued need to build on the efficiency and effectiveness of their supply chain, especially for the wholesale portion of their business. Once again, Spartan Nash divided up into their wholesale portion where they sell a number of products and prepackaged goods to independent retailers or other retail firms. And then they have a handful of retail store banners themselves. Overall, net sales growth was just 3.1%. You might look at that and that might be real cause for consternation, but that actually indicates primarily weakness in their military distribution channel due to COVID-19 restrictions with various commissary services. So they're seeing pretty strong growth, not only in the store banners that they hold, but also in their distribution and wholesale segment that increased 7.8%, which is a solid number considering their prior exit of their fresh production segment. So you look at it overall, it's about about 10% increase year over year in terms of food distribution sales. And that's a good sign for independent grocers because, again, that's largely the client base for Spartan Nash in terms of their wholesale division when they're not selling to their own stores. So we move on from grocery now that we touched on those things. Again, grocery so important to what we're seeing now that we're dipping back into what some are calling the second wave, some are calling the third wave. I think if you pay attention to media, it's probably the fourth or fifth wave that we've seen. But as 
coronavirus conditions worsen throughout the U.S. But in terms of our main story and our news story on this podcast, Dillard's takes center stage. Now, Dillard's is a department store we haven't really discussed recently on the podcast, although over the last five years or so, their sales trends and financials have generally been trending in a better direction than other mall anchors, such as Macy's or JCPenney. For those who may not be familiar with Dillard's, particularly those in New York and surrounding areas, and I know we have a lot of listeners in the northeastern United States between New York, Pennsylvania, and those places, Dillard's is a store chain with an overall selection and marketplace location similar to Macy's. So they would be a step ahead or a step above JCPenney in terms of overall product selection. Customers don't always expect discounts when they go into a Dillard's. But what I do oftentimes is I think about the Little Rock, Arkansas-based department store as maybe a Macy's with half as many locations, about 5% as much press attention owing to their lack of those New York area and Northeast locations and the fact that they're based out of Little Rock, Arkansas, which most of the retail media landscape doesn't really pay attention to, and they have a better recent track record than Macy's. So think of them as basically a half-size Macy's that a lot of people don't pay attention to or don't know about. And one of the other things that probably doesn't help them in terms of press or notoriety, they don't actually host earnings calls most times. So they will put out earnings releases. And the reason we're talking about them on this show is their earnings release was a little bit more complete than what it usually is. Usually they just throw a few numbers at you and then move on. But they do have 250 full-line stores and 32 clearance centers across 29 states. They do have stores as far north as Montana, but again, Pacific Northwest, Upper Midwest, the northeastern area of the United States, they really don't have stores in. One of the other things before they got the call underway, or I say got the call, got the earnings release underway, is they did announce the impending closure of their Paradise Valley Mall location in Phoenix. So the numbers might shrink, and they've shrunk a little bit in the past year by about seven stores. So not the same extent as what you're seeing with Macy's or JCPenney or a lot of those other mall anchors out there. And one other thing I will note before we get into the numbers, Layton has noted this on previous podcasts, but Dillard's is given to owning a decent amount of their real estate versus leasing that turned out to be a positive, a big time positive for them in this most recent quarter. So this quarter, they threw everyone a pleasant curveball where analysts expected a loss of 86 cents per share. Dillard's went the other way and substantially so with diluted adjusted earnings per share of $1.49. So that's $1.49 positive versus 86 cents per share of an expected loss. And with that came a little bit of a bump on Wall Street that we'll talk about later. So how did they get to that positive surprise? Well, it was mostly due to controlling costs as their incoming revenue wasn't all that impressive. Comp store sales decreased about 24%. Overall revenue decreased a little over 25%. Both of those numbers were to be expected given pandemic conditions drastically reduced in-store traffic. But amazingly, and this I think is probably the key thing to focus on for this earnings release, their inventory decreased 22%, which is in near lockstep with the decrease in sales. So their decrease in inventory, when you look at their bottom line, that's a major boon there. And you have to give the company credit for being able to scale back inventory, scale back purchases. And it seems forecast correctly for the back half of the year, at least so far. Now, we'll see if after the holiday season, they say, well, we didn't have enough inventory on hand for a holiday buying surge. But overall, this is a very good sign for the retailer because even though their revenue 
is lower, they're managing to find ways to make money on that revenue and remain profitable on what revenue they are bringing in. Additionally, their selling general and administrative expenses decreased by nearly $100 million. The decrease meant that SGNA was similar to last year as a percentage of sales. Last year, it was 30.1% of net sales. This year, even under pandemic conditions for a department store, it was 31%. So very reasonable totals, very reasonable year-over-year comps, and their overall cost of sales decreased as a percentage of sales additionally, and that's somewhat amazingly. So you're not talking about the SGNA column here. You're talking about the overall cost of goods sold from 66.8% last year to 64.3% this year. Now, inventory had to do with that, of course. The decline was also fueled by decreased payroll expense, which goes into that cost of sales line item, and that was down about 28% during the quarter. The company said, hey, decreased operating hours were to blame for those decreases in total pay and total payroll expense, but it's important to note that the drop in payroll expense means that Dillard's was actually more efficient in terms of payroll versus revenue than in prior quarters. So we look at prior quarters, again, about 25-26% decreases in net revenue, but a 28% decrease in payroll, meaning that they've managed to be more efficient in pandemic conditions despite that decrease in payroll. Now, that's all good for the company. It's not great for the retail workers who are either working the fewer hours or the ones that have gotten laid off or have left voluntarily because they're not getting enough hours. So while good news for the company, it might be bad news for the overall retail landscape or the retail employee landscape. Now, we talk about these drastic decreases in expenditures, including that decrease in inventory expense. That all meant that their net income came in at 3.1% of net sales. And that's versus just 0.4% of net sales a year ago. So they did show a profit a year ago this quarter. But this year, they were very profitable on the money that they brought in. So they're making money on fewer sales and making money on less overall revenue. What other trends are they seeing surrounding the aspects of their business? After all, we can't expect the cost-cutting to continue to a certain point at least if revenue continues to fall. Well, at the very least, the company said that sales in the home and furniture categories were their best performers in relation to other categories. This makes sense. Again, we have been talking about the nesting phenomenon, people spending more time at home, People are spending the money they would otherwise be spending on entertainment and travel when they have the money to spend it on these particular categories. And just like we've seen increases in certain other retailers, you kind of wonder if Pier 1 had stuck it around until the end of the pandemic, what might have happened for them. But we're seeing increases for other retailers. Dillard's, too, is seeing increases in these categories. Interestingly enough, they mentioned ladies' accessories Lingerie and cosmetics also performing in a decent fashion against the rest of their merchandise mix. Ladies' apparel was significantly off numbers from last year, though, and that was a major driver behind their drop in sales overall. So we're seeing people go to Dillard's for home products. We're seeing people go to Dillard's for accessories. Not so much for clothing. And they do have an e-commerce site, although one would argue it's maybe not quite as mature as some of their competitors, the likes of which JCPenney and Macy's, who, as I mentioned earlier, they have seen less success than Dillard's has really over the last five years when you turn to sales increases and decreases and the like. One of the other things that the company added is the sales in their eastern region. And here, when we talk about east, you're really talking about 
maybe mid-coast to southeast because, again, they don't have any retail locations in the northeast north of, say, Maryland, which most people don't even consider the northeastern United States. So you're really talking about here the Carolinas, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, and so forth. And that region performed pretty well for them in the quarter. It outperformed their central and western regions by a moderate amount, or what they said, and I quote, a moderate amount. Now, as we mentioned, because they've rent very little of their current space, rental costs were mitigated significantly versus other retailers. And ultimately, this is what it all comes down to, because there's a lot of retailers out there who don't own any of their own space. And so in pandemic conditions or enforced shutdowns, essentially, they can cut back on staff. They can cut back on inventory, although most haven't cut back the way Dillard's has. But they cannot cut back on rent payments, or at least the landlords certainly don't smile upon them if they cut back on those rent payments. Just see what's going on between Simon and Gap right now. But with Dillard's, only 0.5% of net sales, or $5.1 million, was expended on leases in the quarter, meaning very little money going out the window was for leases in the quarter. And when we break this out to other retailers, we see other retailers, especially mall anchors, spend far more on rents and paying their lease versus Dillard's, especially a company like JCPenney, who has done a number of sale leasebacks over the last decade or so, from stores that they did own. So a very interesting phenomenon for Dillard's and one that puts them in a positive position as far as cash flow is concerned. It should continue to help the company's cash flow, at least compared to other such retailers. And it's going to give them flexibility continuing on for the duration of the pandemic. And in fact, so far, they've managed to maintain a modest dividend to shareholders. That's run up through September. We'll find out next month, December, if they choose to continue that dividend into Q4. But overall, the stock market reacted favorably to their earnings after market close on Thursday. The stock popped 5.82% during trading on Friday. So positive signs from Dillard's, even though sales were down about a quarter from last year, Dillard's and the way they operate has enabled them to keep inventory in check ensure that they're able to also keep expenditures on payroll in check and they know that they own a lot of their own real estate so money isn't flying out the door for leases it might be for taxes and insurance but at least not to pay those leases that are wearing down a lot of other clothing and department store retailers so few things to take away and I doubt this is going to change any other retailers mindset regarding sale leasebacks regarding not owning their own property and such. But it is interesting that in this case, in the case of a pandemic that no one could foresee two or three years ago, Dillard's is the company that is actually doing decently from a financial perspective, in part because they have insisted on owning so many of their own stores. Now, coming up after this break, we're going to talk to Rick Watson, the founder and CEO of RMW Commerce Consulting. And again, we'll be talking supply chain, but more importantly, logistics and logistics with the three main home delivery companies in the U.S. It's been 
been a constant topic for us in bits and pieces on the podcast this holiday season. How are increased e-commerce volumes going to affect the major logistics companies? And on nearly every earnings call, we've heard some concern about this from retail CEOs. And despite a push by many retailers for customers to use buy online pickup and store services, there's still a bit of a cloud hanging over certain e-commerce sales for that reason this holiday season. And here to join us to discuss matters of the potential logistics logjam is Rick Watson, the founder and CEO of RMW Commerce Consulting. Rick's retail accomplishments, by the way, include launching the third-party marketplace at barnesandnoble.com. Many of you might be aware of that or might have used that in the past. Also directing the cross-border product strategy of Pitney Bowes, which included the eBay Global Shipping Program. Rick, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Great to meet you and glad to be here. So first, and we asked this of pretty much every guest, I gave a brief introduction, of course, but I was wondering if you could provide a little color on your experience maybe surrounding the retail industry and how you assist companies currently. Yeah, good question. So kind of my experience in the retail industry has been a mix of work with brands, helping them launch new major, mostly major direct-to-consumer or B2B digital initiatives. I've spent quite a number of time in software technology companies that are assisting brands to do some aspect of their online business. And then being inside Barnes & Noble allowed me to sort of be inside of a retailer that was looking to sort of expand their aperture and like, how do we reach more online customers and grow our business? And so that's what the online marketplace was about. So usually I start at the beginning from an investor or board of directors point of view what customers are we trying to serve? What capabilities do we need to serve these customers? How is that going to position us in the market? And then how can we build a financial plan to make that happen? Then bring in all the different players, agencies, partners, technologies needed and lead them through a project. So that's usually how I start. And then I collaborate with many other solution providers to make that happen. All right. So once you bring in those additional customers to those retailers and a lot of retailers having success in terms of moving some of their sales towards e-commerce, it's a matter of making sure those customers are taken care of. And we've talked a bit about anecdotal evidence of pressures on the Postal Service, UPS, and FedEx. I say anecdotal because it's something a lot of retailers have brought up recently, but in the aggregate, it's kind of tough to know exactly the impacts we might see for the big shipping companies. But what is, just from a wide view, the current state of shipping in the U.S. and product fulfillment for DTC companies, retailers, and so forth as it stands in mid-November? Yeah, as it stands in mid-November is most people had to make their plans much earlier if, if they're, <laughs> they're going to have a great season. Obviously, mid-November, everything should be locked down and battened in. But you know, we're facing, particularly in direct-to-consumer brands, one of the biggest Q4s in recent memories, analysts are predicting it to be maybe 40% bigger than previous Q4. And I think that has to do with the confluence of sort of three main factors. One is you had a lot of brands that weren't online last year and that were forced to being online this year. So that's new volume. Second is you have the COVID volume because people aren't going to retail quite as much in the past, particularly in certain categories like home, furniture, et cetera, that they are now. And then finally, Digital and you know, small parcel delivery has been increasing every year anyway. Just normal Q4 volume growth is present. So kind of the confluence of those factors, it's causing something that you know, a number of people are calling like shipping Armageddon this year that is affecting like a number of the carriers across the industry. 
So you mentioned it, a potential 40% increase for some of these DTC companies. What are some of the things other than pushing customers to use buy online, pick up in store, maybe partnering with third-party last mile services that some of these DTC firms can do or have been doing to ensure that customer expectations are met given possibilities of delays in shipments and then also the cost of the shipments? Yeah, there are a couple of things. Number one is have more than one option. That's usually the number one strategy for any kind of situation where networks are strained is have rates with more than one company. And so having multiple backup plans is really job one. Second is not only should you have multiple carrier options, but you should have multiple customer options. So, you know, if you have stores, definitely encourage pickup in store, either curbside or in store. Target has famously, you know, obviously not everyone listening on this call is as big as a Target, but I think there's a lot that the industry can learn from a company where while they have a big online business, there's a huge synergy between what they're doing in stores and online, and they're fulfilling over 90% of their parcels from stores. So I think those are kind of two big things that people can use to kind of get them out of this crunch that they're experiencing right now. So I like the idea of diversifying, certainly, the companies that you're partnering with, making sure that you're utilizing all of your logistics options out there. But I want to throw kind of a, a case study at you. So let's say you're a, a Tuft & Needle or another direct-to-consumer company. You've got stores in maybe the bigger cities, but someone outside of the bigger cities orders a product. What are some other things that you can do to kind of make sure that your communication with the customer is on target as far as when they might be receiving, say, that mattress, that pillow, whatever they purchase? Yeah, look, communication is king in this environment. And I think if there's one thing that any of us have learned from the pandemic is over-communication is not bad. And even with companies as big as Amazon, who everyone thinks has figured out the whole universe of shipping, people quickly realize that even prime shipments sometimes were taking two or three weeks. And so I would say take a page from that book. Number one is like have consistent messaging, not only in your customer service communication, but in your customer service policies on your website that people can view easily when they're placing the order, ensuring that you are showing them throughout the checkout process when they should plan to see about it. In your order confirmation email, explain to them how often you will be updating them on shipping availability in case there are any issues. So I think the number one rule of any kind of e-commerce operations provider right now is don't surprise the customer. Ensure that you're telling them before they're asking you about what your availability is going to be. And we're not just seeing constrained flow necessarily from the big logistics firms, but also increased prices, which has created a bit of a strain on certain retailers, certain DTCs, bottom line that this flow to e-commerce is kind of causing. What would your message be to a retailer, to a DTC firm about being able to maybe mitigate some of those costs, knowing that costs pretty much across the board, whether you use UPS, FedEx, whoever, are going up at this point? Right. Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, the costs are what they are. There's a reason that the costs are there and FedEx and UPS have greatly increased their surcharges for everyone. They're not taking on new customers in other cases. So just the fact that you're a customer, <laughs> you know, I don't want to say be thankful for that, but that it's, it's an advantage right now for some people who can't open new accounts with these carriers. I think second is diversification does help you with some of these situations. So postal, 
you know, can help you in some of these cases doing your own last mile and kind of LTL or FTL routes for routes that are heavy in your network can work with custom providers. So going outside of the traditional networks in cases where there might be special customer situations or you run into a huge supply chain bottleneck that you didn't expect. And I want to ask you about that because not everyone is a target. Not everyone can just go out and buy a ship and have their own last mile you know, service basically right. under their umbrella. So what's the dialogue like with some of these companies as they begin to kind of look at maybe certain bespoke last mile services or even contracting with other last mile services? Yeah. So step one is to really look at the options and look at volume, where you're picking up from, how are you going to get the product there? Do you need daily pickups? Do you need weekly pickups, depending on how frequently the routes are? You know, for instance, if you're from the US and you're going into Canada, a lot of people start with Toronto. You know, it's a huge, obviously, piece of Canadian volume. And there are quite a number of bespoke custom local carriers in that market that you don't have to go through a major carrier to use. So you know, like any logistics conversation, it always starts with volume. It always starts with classification of the items. What types of items are they? Like any specific customer demands. And then, you know, finally, it just becomes a rate conversation. Neither you nor I have a crystal ball as much as I'd love to have one. I certainly don't. But what are maybe one or two things that you feel like retailers are going to learn from Q4 2020? What are they going to learn? That's a good question. I think number one is they're going to learn how sticky their brand is and how replaceable they are. And so I think anytime in e-commerce, anyone can offer the same thing and there are replacements. In the case where your competitor has a better supply chain than you, then that's a big marketing advantage for that competitor. And so I think you learn quickly, number one is how your customers view you and how good your competition is. Because one of the things I've said all year since COVID started is that availability is marketing this year because there are stockouts on so many different things this year. Shipping lead times have increased greatly. If the customer doesn't want to deal with that, then maybe they'll find something locally around them, but maybe you won't find that out. So you'll get a good measuring stick from your customer where you are. And then secondly, you'll discover if competitors have found a way around this problem that you haven't. And so I would encourage, you know, these retail and brand owners to keep doing your research and to consult legitimate logistics experts that can help you solve some of these challenges with surcharges or rates and those sorts of things. So some great insights there. I love the availability is marketing portion of it. That's certainly something that we've seen a lot of over the last eight months. Well, on top of what we're going to learn from Q4 2020, there's also a Q1, Q2, Q3, and so forth of 2021 coming up. And as we go into the next year, what are some of the conversations that maybe you're having with those in the retail industry about what they're looking towards and and maybe something that they're looking to implement or change coming up for next year? Yeah, I think coming up to next year, people are starting to You know, definitely this year has been about batting down the hatches. It's about a lot of unexpected demand that it was really hard to plan for in the 2020 budget. And so you have a lot of budgets that were overspent this year by necessity to keep the business running and to take advantage of this opportunity. Some people may have gone and got an additional investment. So I think people are looking forward to a little bit more normal 2021. You know, if you look at e-commerce growth 
has traditionally been ticking along at a 15% year over year, I could say in the last three or four years in the US. This year, we're more like 40% across all categories in aggregate. It's obviously different in every category. Some analysts are predicting that a little bit more normal growth on an increased base, more in around 10%, kind of in that neighborhood. And so a little bit reduced growth, assuming that things don't continue as crazy as they have been. So like, how do you get back to a little bit more normal planning cycle? I hate to say it's like 2021 might be more normal. And so I think that's what a lot of people are looking forward to. We can only hope that 2021 is more normal after everything that 2020 has thrown at the retail industry. Well, exactly. Once again, Rick Watson, founder and CEO of RMW Commerce Consulting. If people want to check out your stuff and check out your services, where can they find you? Yeah, so they can find me. Uh, my website is rmwcommerce.com, or you can search on LinkedIn for me. My name is Rick Watson, and happy to have a chat. And I should say there's links on your website as well to times you've been quoted in media, a lot of great insight out there as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. All right, I appreciate the time. Well, we thank Rick Watson once again for joining us on the podcast and shining some light into the shipping situation as we near December in the United States. And for this next segment, we're not going to jump straight to looking ahead, but rather Leighton is going to make his well-awaited return to the podcast. We're going to talk a little bit about places we visited and retailers we've visited over the last little bit. I've gotten some messages on LinkedIn, particularly about my trip to Spokane and about why Leighton's not on the show, so we figured we'd knock both of those out in one fell swoop. Now, Leighton went to the Rust Belt of the United States, as it's maybe not so affectionately known, but he found some really neat places in his retail explorations there as he was doing a little bit of work. I traveled to Spokane. I'm going to give you my takeaways from Spokane. First of all, amazing city, amazing area if you haven't been. Completely recommend it. Retail-wise, it's interesting because they have a few different shopping centers. There is one in the outskirts of Spokane, so to speak, out in Spokane Valley. There's a mall there. But there's also a few shopping malls in Spokane proper. One of them, downtown Spokane, is anchored by a Nordstrom and also an AMC theater. The theater makes the shopping center go up to six floors, but it is a three-story shopping center. It's right there on the Spokane River. That place was absolutely amazing. It's called River Park Square. It was busy when I went in there, which was on a weekend. I also went to a mall on the north side of town, and this is a mall that is Northtown Mall, surrounded with parking garages. Maybe not much to look at from the outside, from the inside. Gorgeous mall. Problem was it was only about 60% occupied. When you're in the mall, it's got nice views of Mount Spokane off in the distance, and Really, it's a great mall in terms of the structure. It's structured like a grid, so it was very easy to move around the mall. You're not doing a ton of walking when you're in there. There are quite a few people there, but there were, when I was there, store counts going on. So, for example, many stores could have only five to seven people in them. Everyone was fastidiously counting the number of people in the stores while I was there. So, a couple of malls there in Spokane. The interesting thing about Spokane is the grocery market there is anchored by a couple of local chains. One is Rosauer's Supermarkets. And to me, if you're going to compare Rosauer's to something, I would say that's kind of like the Albertsons or the Safeway of their particular market, even though they do have some Safeway stores there. 
And then Yolk's Fresh Market. Yolk's Fresh Market was amazing. I need to put pictures up on Instagram because I took a lot of pictures, but every location that I went to was amazing and really transcended the grocery store experience. When we talk really about a next level grocery store, Yolk's Fresh Market is that very definition. So many different products, great variety in produce. The store itself, each one of them is outfitted slightly differently. Each one of them had a different look. The prices were very reasonable. The aisles were large and it was absolutely packed no matter which location I went to. Now they have a couple of locations in Spokane itself and then some locations out in Spokane Valley and in areas further. I should also mention that I went to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which is, I didn't really know this until visiting there, but a little more of a resort town or a town where people might have summer homes, let's say. And that is, you know, a small bucolic town. They have a mall in downtown Coeur d'Alene where you go in and there's maybe you know, 20 tenants, 25 tenants, something like that. None of the tenants were chain tenants. They were all local. They were all native to northern Idaho or what they call kind of the inland Pacific Northwest. And so that was a great experience as well. And you would expect nothing less from a town that's situated right on basically a gorgeous lake. Finally, I went into Montana. I wasn't able, unfortunately, to go to the Kmart store that has signage still on the outside, the exterior from the store from the 1980s. So they haven't been able to update the store from the last couple of cycles, simply because the road leading to that town, it's a very remote town of about 4,000 people. The road leading to it would have been closed to my rental vehicle. Basically, there was a lot of snow, a lot of ice. So had to turn back, spend a little bit of time in Missoula, but then went through Wallace, Idaho. Wallace is a very interesting town. It's a town of about 900 people, and it's also the host of the last stoplight to exist on I-90. Now, none of that's retail related, but they did have a grocery store in town. They had a number of very specific kind of touristy retail stores in the downtown area. The entire town is on the National Register of Historic Places, and that was done to keep basically I-90 developments from bulldozing or going through most of the town. So up until the 90s even, I-90 stopped at a stoplight in the town, and eventually they built an overpass kind of up and around the town so as not to disrupt any of the places that were on the National Register of Historic Places. But that was a very interesting city as well. And again, my takeaway, lots of local retail there. Not a lot of chains in that area in general, so you're not even in the smaller town seeing those family dollars and dollar generals like you would in most places. And as I mentioned, the, the supermarket there, once again, a locally owned supermarket. It was called Harvest Foods, as many locally owned supermarkets tend to be. And so overall, that trip was fantastic. I highly recommend anyone who's either interested in retail or just interested in gorgeous scenery and friendly people to visit the Spokane area. But that was kind of my retail takeaway of things. Now, Leighton, I know you began your trip by flying into the Ohio area so take us through a little bit of where you went to and then also your focus on your travels. Yeah, first I want to say hi, everyone. It's been a while. It's been a few months, Trent, since I've been on the podcast. But yeah, I took a much-needed vacation. I needed to get away from work. I needed to get away from, quite frankly, just the, the grind of things, family included, honestly. And then I also recently have a, a new kitten to take care of, but he can be a bit much at times. So 
I had about six or seven days to myself, and you are correct. I flew into Ohio, the Cleveland MSA, actually, and I arrived about two weeks ago. So again, it was about a week trip. I came back last week at the end of last week, and I had an overall good time. I feel as though maybe not as good as yours in terms of scenery, but I do have a lot of meaningful retail and just overall urban takeaway. So I was able to see the landscape of these historical areas and I was blown away. First off, we'll start with Cleveland. Cleveland proper is just so fascinating because they've been able to keep up all of those older buildings in that area. And you said Rust Belt, Trent, and I I think that's right. I think there's a negative connotation sometimes with that area in general. People think of Detroit, Chicago, some areas that maybe haven't quite kept up their buildings from the industrial age. So the the 1920s, the 1930s, and the 40s saw massive development in those areas. And I was stunned, quite frankly, with how many older buildings from that era were kept intact and in good condition in downtown Cleveland. And for reference, Cleveland has seen their population dying over the last couple of decades. To put it into perspective, over the last nine years or so. They're one of only a couple in the top 50 MSA areas in terms of population density that have seen a decline in population. Yet, it just seemed very healthy. It seemed like a vibrant downtown. So I don't think there's going to be a lot of flight from those immediate areas. But those older buildings were interesting. And I did visit, as this pertains to retail, the Midway Mall, which was built in 1966. Trent, I showed you pictures of this. I don't think it did it justice. This is one of those older malls that's still open, but it would be classified as a dying mall. It used to have a Sears. It used to have a JCPenney. I believe it used to have a Macy's as well, along with newer development from a Best Buy that actually recently closed within the last year. So all of those anchors are now gone. There's a sporting goods store that's left, and there's a few retailers inside of this mall, but the food court is mainly gone. They, of course, left the dining tables there. But overall, aside from a few mall walkers, that mall was empty, but it was a beautiful mall. And if you know me or follow me, you know that I am am very into older retail that is still in existence, but has that nostalgic feel. So not a lot of redevelopment within that particular mall. So a beautiful mall there. And then lastly, with Cleveland, Trent, the Arcade which actually was the first indoor shopping center in the United States of America. So being a history buff and a retail buff, I, of course, had to visit this mall. It opened in May of 1890 and is quite large. It's, I believe, five stories in total. The top three now, or two and a half, I should say, are actually a Hyatt Hotel. But because it's part of the National Historical Society, they can't modify too much on the inside or the exterior of the building. What this means is that Each door of the hotel, so if you go into this Cleveland Arcade, you will see that each door actually has little slots where you can put mail. So they kept all of that hardware intact. It's it's just fascinating to see how people lived back in 1890. And then also, as far as the retail center is concerned, the the first two and a half levels are a mixed-use space. So half retail, half office, still very, very cool to see. They utilize actually the very basement as part of a post office there. An amazing experience. It's not that busy right now, I think, because of the pandemic. And then honestly, if you look back at its history, it suffered from the retail standpoint. It was never actually fully occupied for more than a few years throughout its massive history. And they have had, of course, 
a little bit of redevelopment. They had one in the 1960s. And then, of course, the Hyatt did what they could within those historical guidelines to kind of refresh those rooms and the lobby area. But overall, an amazing experience. And like I said, well worth visiting. It completely blew my mind. I, I did actually drive by the a Christmas Story house, which across the street has a little retail store attached to it. The retail store does a really good job of merchandising. I didn't know there was that much a Christmas Story movie merchandise to be had, but they pretty much have everything. Anything you want kind of store if you're a fan of that movie. Very amazing. And then from Cleveland, I did drive to Akron. I visited an older mall there. Won't go into details. I don't want to bore everyone, but from Akron, I went to Youngstown. Youngstown, also a couple interesting malls. Youngstown, I will say, I feel as though it's just like in Cleveland, wherein they have sort of a bad rap sometimes. And yes, there are a few abandoned Kmarts here and there, and retail is fragmented, but the malls that I visited were newly redeveloped, they were fully occupied, and people seemed to be going there. So highly trafficked malls. And again, this is all in the middle of this pandemic, of course, as well. So something to keep in mind there. From there, I did visit the capital of Pennsylvania there in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, an amazing capital building. Not a lot of takeaways from the retail perspective. I did visit an older mall there that had a Sears. Sears has a couple different spaces there within that city. And overall, I did like Harrisburg. I will say that the capital building was probably the most amazing capital building I've ever seen. And maybe I've only seen seven or eight, Trent. So it doesn't doesn't take that much to woo me. But overall, a, a good experience there. A very seemingly safe city. Not a lot of traffic downtown. Not a lot of shopping centers downtown. But it does have that aura of history still with it, along with, of course, those municipal buildings. But for the first time, right around Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, I visited... A much anticipated BJ's Wholesale Club. This is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. If you're a longtime listener of the Retail Focus podcast, you know that I grew up actually working at a Sam's Club and just had an overall fascination with wholesale clubs. Growing up, Trent and I, our parents didn't have a membership to these kind of clubs. So having worked there and having had that background, I thought it would behoove me to visit a competitor in that space the basically third largest competitor in that space in the United States. BJ's Wholesale Clubs, for those of you who don't know, actually went public not too long ago. So their financials were kind of put out there for the entire public to see. And it is interesting to see how they've been using that money. So with their IPO, they raised a lot of capital. And with that capital, they promised their shareholders and analysts alike that they were going to redo or redevelop some of their locations. They were going to move some locations that were a little bit older. And I will say out of the three concepts, so out of Sam's Club, Costco, and of course, BJ's, BJ's is probably the one that needs the most help in terms of modern infrastructure. The store, the location that I went to did seem a little dated, but I also will say they probably have a little less overhead per location because of this, because they necessarily haven't kept up with the times and going in kind of feels like going into a Sam's Club in the 1990s. But overall, I think they're able to benefit in some of the smaller areas because they can leverage their smaller footprints. Their layouts are very different. I, went, I ended up going to a couple, so they're smaller in size. And so that's, of course, less overhead 
that they have to manage. And I did notice, I don't want to be completely negative about BJ's here. They, they did have a lot of good price points and they had great selection. Their selection and layout was akin to Sam's Club or Costco, but they also implemented self-checkouts. I thought that was an interesting takeaway that I should mention on this podcast. So their money has been put to work. And I, I saw a few people using those self-checkouts. They're very good, modern self-checkouts. So Along with that, in that same vein, there are a few grocers that I visited in the Pennsylvania area that have a presence that really, you know, I, I don't see in Southern California because they're just simply not here. And then also not in Colorado too, Trent. So Giant Eagle is one and then Wegmans is another. Private grocers that have very large headquarter buildings actually in Pittsburgh and New York City respectively. And then Overall layout of these grocers, similar to Kroger or any other large grocery, but I did find it interesting that, and I think you would like this, Wegmans in particular had a huge, massive beer and wine selection. And in fact, if you go on their website, I was curious about this when I visited, they did in fact promote their alcohol sales so, so much. They did it on the front page of their website, and I feel as though maybe a quarter of their website is devoted to that consumer, the consumer that likes alcoholic beverages. But keep in mind, they are a full-service grocery store now that competes with the likes of Kroger and all of the others in that particular space. Downtown Pittsburgh, speaking of Pittsburgh, the retail didn't have much to offer, but there were a lot of nice restaurants, of course. And there's an area, if anyone's visiting, called the North Shore. The North Shore has a few newer retail shops, but mostly it is known for its bars and the like. So you can walk down the river there, you can see some nice lights, and of course you can visit those breweries who have those local selections to choose from. Very interesting, very nice area. I kind of regret not spending more time there, if I'm being honest, but I wanted to rush on to Philadelphia. Within that travel, I visited Willow Street, Pennsylvania, which is a small town on the outskirts of Philadelphia, where there was a beautiful Kmart. And yes, there are only two or three Kmarts left in Pennsylvania. One was way too far out of the way, but Willow Street, like I said, more or less on the way throughout my trip. So I visited with the general manager there. She cared a great deal. She actually came from another store about a year and a half ago. You could tell she was limited with her resources, but definitely cared for what she had left. So it had an active pharmacy. It had an active seasonal aisle. Trent, I showed you some of those pictures, also a video. Very well-maintained, clean Kmart. I know people are bored with this, but look, we only have 34 Kmarts left in the United States by the last time I checked, and and this is very important to us to try to visit them and maybe make a purchase or two while we visit. Couple last things here. People are probably tuned out and have turned off the podcast by now, but I did go to my first Lidl, which is a supermarket that we've talked about that entered the U.S. a few years ago. Very clean concept, bigger than Aldi, has its own niche. And there are several locations on the outskirts of Philadelphia and in New Jersey. Very clean locations, centralized locations. But you can tell my one takeaway here, and it's a positive one, I think, long term. They spent a lot of money in new development, Trent. So all of these buildings, the majority of them, I should say, are nice, new, clean, but you can tell that they completely paved the way in these high traffic areas. So I would imagine looking at the occupancy costs in some of these very highly densely populated areas that it costs them a pretty penny to open some of these locations. And I think 
Long term, it should pay off because anecdotally, the traffic levels were pretty high. Lastly, there were a lot of all these bargain outlets, but along the way, I did visit the King of Prussia Mall. This is actually the third largest mall in the United States. Trent, this was the second largest mall until recently, until just a year ago when American Dream in East Rutherford, New Jersey opened that has just over 3 million square feet. And of course, around 40 or 45% of it is actually an indoor mall. The rest is an entertainment venue of sorts. But the King of Prussia Mall, it should be highlighted here because it's actually one of the oldest malls that's within the top 10 largest malls in the U.S. list. So for reference, it was built in 1963 and has close to 2.8 million square feet to do business in. And it's owned by Simon Property Group by the tune of 100%. So they have faith in this mall. It's been a mall that's performing well for them over the years. There is some bad news, though. While it is seemingly fully occupied, Lord & Taylor, I noticed while I visited, is closing its doors. And I was talking to a few people with inside the Macy's there, and they seem to think, again, anecdotally, we don't have the sales figures, that traffic has waned because of, of course, the pandemic. So here you have 2.8, roughly, million square feet that you have to heat and cool and manage. And it's a destination. It's a destination for folks that are around and in the Philadelphia area. And so if you have to think about the amount it takes on a monthly or even weekly basis in terms of upkeep, while the traffic levels are low, while the revenue figures are relatively low, it's going to be a struggle for Simon Property Group to really keep up that particular mall, but it was a great mall. It was a great mall. And if you visit that area, I highly recommend it. And that is it, Trent. That's, that's it for my travels. I did go to New York City, but it was more not really retail centric there. I will say that it was a good trip overall. I practiced all the CDC recommended safety protocols, but nobody nobody was really out. Nobody was really out and about. I have to say I was delighted to not see a lot of traffic throughout all of my travels from Cleveland to New York City. In the end, it was a really great trip. And thanks for having me on this edition of the podcast too. Yeah, a couple of takeaways there. You mentioned that that mall is 100% Simon owned. So again, that means that the anchors don't necessarily own their spaces there like they might in other malls throughout the country. So I think that's a good takeaway from that. And then a couple of other things you mentioned regarding Wegmans. You know, it's funny, the Wegmans location in Maryland or the locations in Maryland don't have that flexibility to sell the beer and wine like they do in other areas. And so they find different ways to differentiate, mostly through their grocery segment. But big fan of Wegmans as well in the stores that I visited. And I agree 100% with your takeaway on Lidl because we talked about grocery outlet in the first segment of the podcast. We've talked about Aldi from time to time. Lidl is really kind of more towards that Trader Joe's area, but it's kind of its own thing too. So I'll be anxious to see, especially as you mentioned, with high occupancy costs and high costs of development where they are developing their own stores. We know developers are doing it most of the time, given what we've heard about Lidl, but still interesting to see regarding those occupancy costs if they can keep their run of success, at least early on in the United States going. So Leighton, once again, thanks for joining us on the podcast, and we'll be back with the Looking Ahead segment right after this. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. 
Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. Well, we thank Layton for joining us on the podcast. It was good to have him back, and we hope to have him back to actually talk about a news story here in the next few weeks. So my looking ahead story is in regards to the grocery space. I mentioned it. We talked about grocery outlet in the outset of the show and how comps at 9.1% over last year was a, a bit of a decrease from them sequentially from what we've seen from other quarters. And maybe it suggests that we're seeing not softness, certainly, because you would have done backflips with near double-digit comps in that sector a year ago. But maybe this means that business is beginning to wane a little bit with the pandemic push towards grocery retailers and specifically value grocery retailers. And an article on CNBC this week actually backed that up with market research firm IRI providing data. Sales of premium and super premium packaged goods, according to, again, IRI, grew by 1.7% at retailers year over year for the 26 weeks ended October 4th. And one of the things you say, well, that's 26 weeks that includes some of the quarters where retailers like Grocery Outlet were doing well. But the president of Strategic Analytics at IRI said that the trend has actually continued or maybe picked up even more in recent weeks. And there's a few different reasons they go into as to why this might be the case. I don't think there was a consumer survey asking why, but some of the postulations about it include that maybe people are trying to make mealtime more of an event, people are spending money on groceries because they don't have other places to spend their money, and the fact that although we've seen a lot of households financially impacted by the pandemic in one way or the other, Depending on who you listen to, it's anywhere between a quarter and a third of American households have been financially impacted by coronavirus. Some people say it's even more than that. We're still seeing expenditures in the retail sector come in about where, in aggregate, we thought they would on the year, especially in grocery, where we've seen this surge in sales. So bottom line being, if people are spending more money on premium and super premium products, does that mean that retailers like the likes of grocery outlet, like the likes of Aldi. Some of the retailers we discussed during that segment with Layton, will they see their growth begin to wane a little bit? And do retailers like Whole Foods and Sprouts benefit as people begin to swap out for substitute goods that might be a little bit more expensive? So just something to keep an eye on during the fourth quarter, especially with the holidays coming up, because we all know the holidays, such a big time of year. When it comes to the grocery sector, will we see these trends continue? If so, it might be a big win for not only Sprouts and Whole Foods, but also the likes of Kroger and Albertsons. And if customers are pulling away from some of those budget food retailers, there might be other retailers impacted as well. You look at Ollie's Bargain Outlet and Big Lots as retailers that also carry food that we don't think of as first and foremost grocery retailers. So just Something to keep in mind there, courtesy of IRI Data and also CNBC. So that'll do it for this week's edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. Coming up next week, we will actually wrap up our holiday projections and our holiday retail shopping reports with Oracle Retail. It's always great to have a representative from Oracle Retail on the show. And 
This next week's guest is no exception. Mike Webster, the Senior Vice President and General Manager of Oracle Retail, will be joining us to discuss their annual global holiday shopping survey results. I guarantee you're going to want to check that out if you like retail in any way, as he's got a lot of fascinating insights surrounding their data at Oracle Retail. Once again, for Leighton Kling and for Rick Watson, I'm Trent Kling saying so long until next week, and thank you for listening. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.